Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Anne Yu on her debut novel, Braised Pork. Anne Yu was born in 1992 and raised in Beijing, where she became interested in capturing the stories of modern life in the city. She has since studied and worked in New York and Paris, and writes her fiction in English. And Braised Pork, which is her first novel we're going to be talking about today. And welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. Um, tell me, first of all, how you would describe this novel. Oh, it's a novel uh, at its core, sort of about uh, a woman's journey to overcoming loss and... Um, making amends with her past and also making more sense of her own identity as you know as a recently widowed woman as well as as a human being uh within the context of Beijing um and this is your your debut novel so yeah. can we talk for a bit about how how it actually came about how over what period of time it was written so I wrote this in, I started in 2016 um and it took about two years to just get the f- a final draft um, done, and it started off as you know an, an idea for a story, and then I wrote sort of short stories out of the main character Jia Jia, and and then I had a dream of um, this, the fish man, which is you know a recurring motif in the novel, and I wanted to combine the two somehow and try to experiment with a story you know birthed out of these two ideas. And quickly realized that it was going to be, you know, a much longer piece. And that's sort of how I started writing. Um, and just, you know, it kept it kept going and it became a story that I sort of never really planned to write the way uh, it turned out. Um, the first half sort of went according to plan and the second just sort of wrote itself eventually, I think. Our protagonist then, yeah. Wu Jaja, yeah. um it's not. It's a story that's told in the third person, so it's not. It's not uh, her narrative, but she is definitely our, our, our main mm-hmm. protagonist. Amongst a, there's a number of other really great characters in the story. But tell us first of all who she is. So she is um, in her early thirties, and she used to be an artist, and then she got married to a wealthier sort of businessman, Chen Hong. So he dies rather mysteriously at the beginning of the novel, and starting then she sort of embarks on this journey towards 
finding out more about his death and about herself. Um, and in the constraints of her marriage, uh, she was sort of not allowed to pursue her art anymore, and it became more of a hobby kind of thing. So we also, throughout the novel, see her um, reconnect with her artistic pursuits. Um, tell me more about her her late husband then as well, because, I mean, I guess most of all I want to know really, you know, some more about their marriage, you know, what their marriage was like before he mysteriously dies. Um, as you've just sort of, you know, explained, she's quite constrained within this marriage and I wonder what was in it for him. Tell me something about this, mm-hmm. the dynamics of this marriage. So it was contractual from both ends. Uh, they both saw something important um, in the marriage that wasn't purely emotional. So for her, it was sort of financial stability and I suppose overall stability. Um, And she sort of believed that if rationally a marriage made sense, it would last. And for him, uh, he, you know, is an older man and he's quite wealthy and he, even with all sort of his wealth, he still has, you know, his insecurities and he thinks that having an elegant and very uh, well-behaved woman as his wife would add to his, I suppose, image as a whole. Um, On his death, she is, I guess, both adrift, you know, she's living in this much too big apartment Mm -hmm. that, you know, becomes more and more empty. Um, But at the same time, obviously, she is set free right. um, from the constraints of that marriage. And I wanted to talk about a bit about the sort of the contrast between those, you know, a lot of the the, the remaining story of the, the plot of the novel is her basically, you know, coming to terms mm-hmm. with those two competing ideas. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think uh, when she's sort of thrown into the situation, she doesn't, she has no clue how to navigate it. She doesn't know whether uh, she should just sort of go on as, you know, this recently widowed widowed woman and live her life the same way she had been before. And then she quickly realizes that she can't. And in her sort of misery at the same time, in her lost and wandering state, she becomes more aware of what had happened like in her past. So her past sort of comes and she's been like waylaid by it in a way. And I think the, as, as she moves on, she becomes more clear about, her simultaneous sort of grief and anger and resentment and on the other hand her like newly found freedom and hope and it's I suppose like the whole the whole surreal part as well of the novel uh, is supposed to underscore that and complement that feeling of you know these two tensions coexisting. Yeah the very sort of the metaphor of her which we'll talk about later in in the interview, but there's this, you know, ongoing metaphor of a sea, of her drowning, not being able to breathe, right. um, which obviously sort of like feeds into that sort of feeling of being mm-hmm. cut adrift in, in, in the way that she is. Um, I don't want to go too deeply into her past because, mm-hmm. again, it forms the sort of, you know, right. the core of the story, which we don't want to give too much away. But uh, so we, I don't want to talk about her mother, but she has a an estranged father. Can we just mm-hmm. talk for a moment about the relationship she has with her father? Yeah. So she, uh, so her father, uh, well, from her point of view, her father sort of left her mother and her when she was very young. Um, and ever since then, she, she hadn't had a very sort of close relationship with her father. And they would sort of meet up once every year over a very casual lunch where 
he didn't seem like he cared that much about her, um, and she resented him for it. Uh, so that that is sort of her impression of her father at the beginning of the novel, and that would, will slowly shift as as the novel goes on. And she's been raised by um, a grandmother mm-hmm. and an aunt. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us something about these two characters. So I personally really, really sort of love those two characters because it, it they sort of both exist within this tiny little apartment that uh, Jia Jia's grandmother owned from, you know, when she was much younger. And it's it's this apartment where, so, so her, her grandmother lives there, her aunt and her aunt's newlywed husband so they're all sort of in this tiny little apartment, and then Jia Jia eventually moves there too. So she grew up in around this old lady who, you know, is is very tough and uh, has, you know, her own opinions on how Jia Jia should live her life. And then her aunt is this sort of carefree, um, romantic woman who, you know, just wants Jia Jia to sort of be happy. But of course, at the same time, her aunt projects her own sort of thoughts onto Jia Jia as well, thinking that, you know, she keeps telling Jia Jia, like, you should do this, you should do that. Um, She has all these sort of crazy schemes. Yes, she does. Get rich schemes. (laughs) Um, And she wants Jia Jia to follow some of her advice, which a lot of times weren't very clever. And once she moved out of all of that, she's been rather sort of alone since then, I think. Um, But even growing up within this household of, you know, there's clearly love coming from both her aunt and her grandmother, the the missing sort of parent, the missing mother, the missing father sort of still added to her loneliness as since childhood all the way up until, you know, the book. And there's a there's an incident that happens, I mean I guess probably about a third of the way into the book where mm-hmm. her aunt's husband gets caught up in mm-hmm. a, a sort of like government anti corruption mm-hmm. sweep. And at that point when that happened I realised that actually this is one of the first times where sort of the the real world had sort of intruded into the story. The story is set, you know, Zhao Zhao's growing up in grown up and is living in sort of modern day Beijing. Mm-hmm. Um, but so far, what we've seen is um, a sort of you know bland internationalist city mm-hmm. of apartment buildings mm-hmm. and not really anything of you know what one might imagine mm-hmm. of Beijing and and that is not the case when we go on later which we'll talk about later mm-hmm. when we go on to you know to visit Tibet in the yeah. book um, and obviously a large part of the story is going to be sort of you know bringing in sort of folk tales mm-hmm. into the story but as I said I, I just sort of realized that you know actually we weren't getting much of mm-hmm. what I would imagine Beijing right. as a city to be and I wondered if that that was obviously a deliberate yeah. Thing. So in a sense, I think living, just honestly speaking, living in Beijing, you don't really, you're not constantly being aware that, you know, this is China, this is Beijing I'm living in. It's, It feels like, you know, a lot of other big cities around the world with its, like you said, apartment buildings, office buildings, bars, restaurants. Um, but of course, there are moments um, where, you know, things happen that are more specifically to the location and the setting. And I wanted that to be how the setting felt in the book. I wanted to, to just, you know, organically come in and not become, you know, a, a statement and a thing being, you know, like this book is set in Beijing and here, let me tell you why. Um, so I wanted it to be more organic. Um, as When we go into the, the, the second part of the interview, I wanted to talk in the main about the, you know, the folk aspects yeah. and the more surreal aspects of the story. And, and to get us there, another point where I guess, the, you know, the 
the real world intrudes. Um, uh, Jojo jo embarks on this sort of you know relationship with with a bartender Leo, and and at one point he takes he takes her to visit his parents for New Year. Mm. <clears throat> and what transpires out of this is that um, you know they consider widows to be bad luck. Yeah. And indeed, as you you mentioned, Jojo has already been sort of abandoned by her parents in law mm. for similar reasons. And yeah. I just wanted to talk about this idea, this sort of idea of you know the, these old sort of traditions, old superstitions from a couple of generations back. Yeah seeping into the into the modern day. Yes, I think that um, even though just people of not only sort of the young generation, but also the one before that and the one before that, everyone, I think a lot of people have the, the intention to, you know, adopt more sort of modern philosophies and not to be so superstitious, especially in large cities like Beijing and Shanghai. But at the same time, it's hard to let go of that when it comes to when it, com- when it becomes too personal, when it becomes about your son marrying a woman. Um, so there's there, there's that sort of tension, and Leo had never really thought about Jia Jia that way at all. And of course, Jia Jia has insecurities when it comes to that as well, which is sort of what led into their kind of argument in the car after that. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Anne Yu, and we're talking about her debut novel, Braised Pork. And, and as I mentioned, I want to go on to talk about the 
the central image of this mm-hmm. novel, which is um, when Jaja finds her, her dead husband, mm-hmm. he has left behind this mysterious drawing, basically of a, a sort of, I'd like to say a merman, like a half man, <laughs> half fish, a, a fish yeah. with a man's head, yeah. which she becomes obsessed with and wants yeah. to get to the bottom of, yeah. of what this means. Tell me where that image comes from. So that image came from a dream I had. Um, but soon it became more than just a striking image to me. I think soon it became much more, I, I don't want to say symbolic because I, I don't exactly know what it symbolizes, but it becomes much more something much more important and substantial to the novel um, as sort of a guide between the real and the surreal. And the fish man becomes something really crucial to, to all the characters involved um, in their journey into and out of and perhaps into forever the world of water. So this is not a a, a symbol that's a, you know that's a, a famous story from Chinese or Tibetan folklore. No, then. I don't think so. I, ever since then, I've been <laughs> seeing sort of pictures around. I, I was in a museum, I think, in Paris uh, a year ago, and I just saw a painting of you know the fish man, and then I, I, I keep seeing it everywhere now. So it must not be you know all that original <laughs> um, as I thought. But no, it didn't. I, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't particularly inspired by a specific folklore when I thought of the image. Well, that's interesting then, because that means you've had to develop this mythology for yourself. So yeah. let, let's talk about that. You know, sort of how you went about creating what seems like to me a something <laughs> yeah. that's plucked straight out of some sort of mythology. <laughs> so I've had the uh, world of water as an image um, running through my head for a while, and I. I, I didn't really know. I didn't want to touch it for a long time, and I didn't really, because I didn't really know under what context I should bring it in. But in Jiajia's uh, sort of wandering state, uh, it became something that feels almost inevitable and obvious for her to experience, and it encapsulates this, I think, like nocturnal strangeness. Um, of her world, which is, you know, filled with empty apartments, um, small bars at night, a lot of hazed, uh, not only literal haze in the air, but also just this dreamy state she's in. And and it became something quite central and essential to her journey. And since her past sort of violently comes into her present, it, it made a lot of sense for the world of water to have influenced her past as well, um, as well as her parents. And it, it, it seemed like a place where she would go into to experience the the strangeness and the completely sort of blackness at the same time, the hope, somewhere with hope and freedom and whatever. Uh, it just seemed like a place where, where she would naturally go into. It also seemed like a place where other people would go into as well and we want would want to explore yeah i mean i'm just just without giving too much away about the actual sort of meeting let's let's just just elaborate for us on what you mean by the world of water so so Mm -hmm. uh, at numerous points in the book she is i don't know like you know imagines or is transported into this other state Mm -hmm. where literally at one point She's just in this black mm-hmm. sea, a sort of a nothingness, mm-hmm. but that is, you know, feels like a sea. At another point, she is, she's been hired to paint this painting mm-hmm. 
of uh, Buddha on the wall for a, a rich couple and um, all of the blues in that in that painting just sort of dissolve into mm-hmm. into water. And this obviously feels... I mean, I'm saying it, it, it feels real to her as if, you know, this is some sort of mental state. But, of course, you know, it, there's also illusions that it could be some sort of, like, you know, right. I guess parallel reality or right. something. Well, the, the way I see it is that I don't... I don't see a very distinct uh, boundary between what is the real world and what is the world of water, what is Mm -hmm. the more surreal. I think it's, I I find that in my experience, um, there are moments where, you know, a small thing, a small object or a conversation or a word could transport you and your experience into a different realm and where everything suddenly seems strange and it might just come back immediately or you might get stuck in that sort of mind space where you know everything around you just seems like what is going it it, everything is eerie and strange and the world of water for me is is that space um in a very sort of vague sense of whatever it means so it it could this constant sort of shift between you know reality and irreality is not only like a running theme in in the book but also I think real life is often sort of like that. Yeah. And there are there are numerous characters throughout the book that have some sort of connection to the world of water that aren't necessarily that apparently connected. Mm-hmm. Um so I guess it also seems a metaphor for I said that like some sort of, you know, mental state, depression perhaps, mm-hmm. or certainly at least is something that happens when People are going through some sort of stress. Disappear. Mm-hmm. There are disappearances often linked, or deaths mm-hmm. often linked yeah. to its appearance. Yeah, I, I don't. Um, it could be depression. Uh, it, it could be something more nuanced and contradictory um, than depression. For some of the characters, it is a place where they feel like they have to go, um, where they feel like it's an escape or sort of the only escape from the reality that they've been living. For some characters, it feels more real than the real world. For some characters, it's sort of a dream that, or it's a place that they want to go, but they might not have been able to access at all. So I think for for different characters, it will manifest in, in different ways. I also like the way that in this, you know, it was an elusive the book often seems to set off in in sort of a direction. So, for instance, when she goes to Tibet yeah. to search, where she is convinced she is going to find the answers, and I mean, I guess you know, in in a way, she does. But in the more obvious way, she's going there looking for this particular carving, this particular statue, which you know turns out to be not what she's expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the the way that that sort of idea of you know, following in different directions, I guess, is what I'm is what I'm trying to say, sort of fed through the book. Yeah, I do think that, you know, sometimes you go on a journey with a very obvious goal in mind, and then it's very soon it sort of turns into something completely different, and you're okay with that. Um, for her, it's not only the physical journey, but an emotional, psychological journey. And I think for many people, too, it's... Um, you never really end up where you sort of wanted to be, but and that's okay, and that might even be better. Can we talk a bit about that trip to Tibet? Um, because as I sort of alluded to earlier, when 
in in that section, it suddenly the book becomes much more descriptive, you know, often much more lyrical about the the environment mm-hmm. um, as she is journeying back to, you know, basically a village mm-hmm. um, from the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's definitely a sort of change in, in, in the register. Tell me about that. Well, to, to Dadia, it's also going to a foreign sort of alien land. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reader, I think we are experiencing it um, the same way she is, uh, where we're noticing things that that she's not used to or that she notices, uh, whether it's, you know, the strange village and the strange people in there or uh, mountains that she's never really seen before. Um, whereas in Beijing, it was, you know, where she was born and raised. She doesn't, everything she notices is an extension of how she's feeling at the time. It's more like the same building she's been seeing for 20 years suddenly means something different. Um, whereas in Tibet, it's, it's, it's all new. Uh, so I, I, I suppose that's mostly what contributes to the, the change in tone um, in the narrative. And then finally, before, just to, you know, to follow on from that, mm-hmm. before I get you to, to read a bit of the book, if you would, um, I was going to raise the title. And again, I don't know how much we can talk about it without giving too much away. Mm-hmm. But in the same way, it's it, it's something that becomes, that takes on, yeah. it's 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 a while before it becomes apparent <laughs> what what why the book is called Braised Pork. And then, you know, that menu item takes on a, you know, a sort of yeah. real symbolic meaning as well. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I'd... Um describe it as being symbolic it's more just it's important i think yeah um it's very important for her and it doesn't really mean that much doesn't there's no grander meaning behind it but but nonetheless uh, very significant to to her entire journey can i get you to read a bit of course i'll read from the beginning braised pork the orange scarf slid from jaja's shoulder and dropped into the bath it sank and turned darker in color, hovering by Chen Hang's head like a goldfish. A few minutes earlier, Jia Jia had walked into the bathroom, a scarf draped on each shoulder to ask for her husband's preference. Instead, she had found him crouching, face down in the half-filled tub, his rump sticking out from the water. Oh, lovely, are you trying to wash your hair? was what she had asked him. She knew well that he would not pull such a joke on her, but was it even possible for a grown man to drown in this tub? She checked his wrist for a pulse and bent to see whether there were bubbles coming out of his nose. She called his name, stepped into the bath and grabbed him by the torso to lift him so that at least he could be the right way up. But he refused to budge, rigid like a broken robot. The ambulance was on its way, or so they said. Jia sank to her knees on the beige-tiled floor. She pulled the plug so the water could drain. It was the only thing she could think of doing now. Maybe, without the water, Chen Han would be able to breathe again. Crossing her arms on the rim of the bath, Jia observed her husband's body as if he were a sculpture in the museum. She had never seen such stillness. She was certain that this was the first moment of silence she had spent with him in their four years of marriage. Even when they slept, there were always sounds. His snoring, the air conditioning cars on the street, but she could not hear anything now. His crouching body appeared to be growing grayer and thinner, like dried and unglazed clay that was going to fall apart. Jia felt suddenly like vomiting, realizing that she had not been breathing either. 
She covered her mouth with her palm and tried to think about something else. She thought about how long it took for a body to grow cold after death. A few minutes? An hour? A few hours? She did not know. The humidity pressed down like hands on her throat, and the marble bathroom that had always been far too large seemed too small in this moment, suffocating for the two of them. It became clear to Jia Jia that Chen Hang must not have considered, not even for a moment, that such a place was improper for a death. He had not thought about his wife, who was going to be the first to find him, who was going to be alone when she did, and who would certainly be forced to wait before anyone else would join her in that bathroom. He had not pictured her in those few minutes after discovering him there, naked and dead, because if he had, he would have surely chosen another way. During their breakfast that morning, Chen Hang had muttered, with a sigh and a mouthful of pickled cucumber, that perhaps it would be a good idea to resume their annual trip to Sanya. This was the first time anything encouraging had come out of his mouth for weeks. He had called off their holiday the previous year for unspecified reasons, presentiments Jia Jia had feared of his lacking of his increase. Presentiments Jia Jia had feared of his increasing lack of interest in her. And their marriage. He had never loved her. No, she knew that much. She was not a fool. But they had promised each other a lifelong partnership, held together if not by love, then by their declared intention to have a family. And so, as long as he had assured her that he intended to remain married to her, everything else had been forgivable. When will we go? Jia Jia had responded immediately. Chen Hang still chewing on that cucumber. I'll start packing after breakfast. Whenever you like, I'm going to have a bath. A bath? Chen Hang knew. Jia Jia knew that Chen Hang had never been a man to have baths. He found no pleasure in soaking himself in hot water and preferred to shower, believing it led to cleaner results. She wanted to inquire further. She quickly swallowed her food, drank some water, and opened her mouth to speak, but decided to keep her silence for fear of irritating him with her questions and forcing him into a bad mood so early in the day. Don't pack too much," he warned her, bringing the bowl of congee to his mouth and eating what was left in one gulp. Jia Jia heard him put put in the plug and Jia Jia heard him put in the plug and start the water. It was November and she had just finished organizing their wardrobes for winter. She opened his suitcase, mounted the chair, and reached into the upper compartment of the wardrobe for his summer clothes, refusing to let herself be distracted for fear of forgetting something of his. She was not going to let that ruin their trip. Let him have his bath. She decided. Let him have his time alone. So I've been talking to Anne Yu. We've been talking about her debut novel, Braised Pork, which is out now in the UK from Harville Secca. And thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance one hundred four point four FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.